You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. back to Twibley, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, representing Miyagi-Do Karate, it's Mr. Jeff Huge. Hey, sweet the leg, sweet the leg. <laughs> How's it going, man? Uh, best defense, no be there. Yeah. <laughs> right, best way to avoid a punch is not to be there when it's thrown. That's Philosophies, right. to, words to live by. Right. And uh, I, I've always liked the, uh, the Mike Tyson kind of paraphrasing of that is, Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah, that's the truth. Yep. And then the plan goes out the window. Yep. And your Wait. teeth go out the mouth. <laughs> what are you doing? What are you up to? Ah, you know, same old stuff. I'm in a, I'm in like a creative ebb, a lull, a prof. Uh, yep. That sort of thing. So I'm taking some time to. Uh, I know the phrase that gets bandied around, at least in business circles right now, is self care. But I'm, I'm taking some time to enjoy the art of other people. Oh, so. okay. I thought, I thought you were doing, like, mud masks and pedicures. Oh, I play in the mud all the time, but I don't make masks. Okay. Yeah, so. Oh, so you're doing what we call in the gym world as a rest day. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. I'm taking some time off from my own projects, and, and like, I'm messing around with other stuff. I'm reading books that other people wrote, and... That is almost exactly what I am doing these days. Oh, like, I finished the mural a little while ago, mm-hmm. and, you know, September's been done for a few months now, right. and now I'm just like, I'm such an old lady now. You know that app you can get on your tablets? It's like a, a digital coloring book? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, there was this woman in at work, and she would always be doing those in the cafeteria, and this guy that I worked with and I would always kind of, like, snicker, like, what the hell, you know, because it's... You know, it's paint by numbers or a digital coloring book or whatever. It's like, how lame is that? Whenever I did my drive down to Florida, you know, I wasn't the only person driving. So I brought my right. tablet with me and I needed something to kill time. So I was like, ah, I'll download that digital coloring book. It is like digital crack is what it's like because I do it every day. I do it every single day. I have a, a question for you about doing them in, while you're driving or riding in a, in a vehicle. Do you get like nauseous if you're reading in a vehicle? No. Because I, I wonder if I could do... I get nauseous if I'm reading in a vehicle, so I'm wondering if I could do that on my phone and not, like, get sick to my stomach. Oh, no, dude. I could do Rubik's Cube while I'm on roller coasters. I do not get motion sickness at all. Oh, okay. No. That means nothing to me. I, I When people describe it, I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's like having the stomach flu, but it only lasts as long as I'm trying to read a book in the car. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other thing is my friends bought me a jigsaw puzzle... It's a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle of, like, seven or eight different versions of Eddie from Iron Maiden. So it's like, right, yep. up, yeah, right up my alley. I love Iron Definitely. Maiden. And yes. I, 
and I love the Eddie artwork. So that's that's been cool. Except I have to like bring this big fog light into my living room with me and wear my glasses because my <laughs> eyes are rapidly rapidly failing. So in order to make out the pieces, yeah. Yeah, that's terrible. And you end up with like Homer Simpson when he builds the the brick uh, barbecue grill in his backyard. And he holds up the picture, and he's like, why don't you look like that? <laughs> so what happens if I try and do something like that without my glasses on. And what are you doing? What are you not doing, I should say? <laughs> like I said, I'm not – right now I'm not doing any writing. I'm doing reading of other people's stuff. I'm reading a book by a Chinese guy named Chichin Lu called The Three-Body Problem, which is eh, – it's okay. I'm almost done with it. Yep. And it won a Hugo Award, but it hasn't won a McLarge Huge yet. So. Okay. I'll let you know when I finish it if it's worth reading. There's supposed to be some Netflix series based on it, but I'm not sure how it could be turned into compelling television. So, All right. Before we move on to the show proper, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. You remember Gilligan's Island? I do. Yep. So you remember the Skipper? Yes. Did you know the Skipper has a name? Of course he has a name. Nobody's born Skipper. Not, you don't mean like the actor's name, right? Alan Hale Jr. No, no, not Alan Hale. You mean like no. the character, the skipper, has another He has another name? Yes, he does. Like the professor didn't have another name. Right. He was just the professor. Sure, but everybody the else movie had... star did. She was Ginger. So right. I don't know. Okay. Right. No, I had no idea that yep. he had another name. Yep. And yeah. So what is the skipper's name? That is our uh-huh. question this week. Oh, man. Well, we'll have to row, row, row our boat to the end of the show. I'm sure my brother is, like, leaping through the podcast right now yelling, I know it! I know it! Well, he doesn't know when Batman started, so I (laughs) suspect that he knows that. All right. This is the week beginning March the 7th, and my extensive record-keeping tells me it is your turn to start. It is indeed my turn to start. Uh, March 7th, 1983. 1983. A channel called the Nashville Network premieres as a cable TV station that goes very rapidly nationwide. Doesn't sound like a big deal, but it's one of the first weird specialty stations to have a nationwide footprint on almost all the cable carriers in a really short time. Country music is like one of those things. Like Country music and rap are two music styles that are very American. And I guess you could make the argument for jazz, too. But country music, country western music and rap are two very, very American music styles. And 1983, that's only two years after MTV launched. And and MTV didn't show country music outside of, like, 38 Special. Well, ironically enough, neither did the Nashville Network. (laughs) For for the most part, you would think that... Spotting how MTV focused and being yeah. Music City, yeah, someone would have put two and two together and got four and said, like, man, if we can get Hank Williams Jr. and you know Dolly Parton to make music videos, we'll make a mint. Right. What instead they did was like, we need some fishing shows and a couple of shows about guys who hunt stuff. <laughs> so that's what we need. So instead of two and two equals four, two and two equals a largemouth bass. Oh my two God. and two equals one and a half. Yes. <laughs> it was really weird. I'm not saying they weren't successful, and they did have some music on. They used to show no. some of the concerts from the Ryman uh, Auditorium and some other stuff from the Grand Ole Opry, but it was way more sporadic. It wasn't dedicated like MTV was. Now, admittedly, MTV knew its audience, sort of young, middle-class, suburban kids. Right. Right? Four, 14 to 24, right. 
The Nashville network also knew its audience. It was mostly southern or rural, sort of white people from like 35 up, and they catered their TV specifically to that demographic. So again, really successful in a different way. Yeah, I remember whenever it launched, you know, because I was a teenager and I was like the Nashville network because, you know, you couldn't get any more square than, right. you know, country western music whenever I was a teenager. Well, that's no, where besides. square dancing comes from, yeah. country western music. <laughs> so, exactly. So, it's like, why do we need the Nashville network? We got MT- We've got MTV, blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, me, I've always been a big wrestling fan. I mentioned that from time to time. I remember... The WWF or WWE, I forget what year it was, they made their leap from the USA Network over to TNN. But TNN had changed their name at that point to the National Network. We always thought that was like a weird jump. It's like, we still know what you are. We, you're still you're still the you know basically the redneck channel. <laughs> Admittedly, I don't know that I'd go that far in calling it that, but... Like I will. There's a, <laughs> yes, but you're, you're welcome to. There's an element of it that sort of makes sense, uh, I think, because of the mythology of the South and country and Western music sort of in general and how that is tied so deeply into the history of the, I'm going to say this, and please do not email the show with threats of violence, but the like American quote-unquote nation. Yeah. So it would it would make sense that they would rebrand it that way and take it out. I don't know why they would take it out of Nashville, but it's because they didn't lean into the country music stuff. They Enough. leaned into no. the more cultural stuff. Right. And it made more sense to lean into the more cultural stuff and let the country music stuff go. I'm sure they also had problems with like, no, they can't get licenses to Garth Brooks music. No, they can't get licenses to Kenny Chesney. They're not going to get a license to Dolly Parton. Nobody's going to give them licenses. They're not making music videos. This isn't their audience, you know? Yep. And then years later, they were just like, oh, screw it. And, uh, <laughs> and the National Network later became Spike TV, if you remember that. Yes, TV for men. Yes. As it was billed. It was a bunch of girls jumping around on trampolines and the Star Wars movie marathons, yeah. Yeah, yeah the Man Show was on that station, as was the first like real Marvel, modern Marvel uh, TV adaptation. They had a, a run of Blade for one season, which I don't think it ran the whole season. Uh, Man, was Stripperella. <laughs> oh, God, yes, I remember Stripperella, right, yeah. And, and the only thing I remember that was good that came out of Spike TV was Most Extreme Elimination Challenge. That show was <laughs> really funny. Moving on to March the 8th, your friend and mine, Cliff Richards, uh, who was the the British Elvis, as he was commonly known. <laughs> the Brelvis. Brelvis, yeah. So <laughs> Cliff Richards, a.k.a. Brelvis, teams up with the actors that played the young ones in your and my collective favorite British TV show mm-hmm. to record a charity single, a remake of Cliff Richard's song, Living Doll. So this was yes. March the 8th, 1986. Hilariously, I'd never remembered hearing Cliff Richard's before that, and I didn't realize that I had until I was much older. Oh, yeah, because uh, Rick on The Young Ones always used to make reference to Cliff Richard, that was like his favorite recording star. It's like me making, you know, references to Marillion, I guess. I knew a little bit about Cliff Richards because in MTV's early days, they used to show like two music videos for him. They used to show Dreamin' was one song. It's So Funny We Don't Talk Anymore was the other one. Right. And Cliff Richards, they he may be Brelvis, but 
Man, he's not cool looking at all. I remember thinking to myself, who the hell is this? Who is this overly tanned dude? I remember realizing that I had, I had heard Cliff Richards a lot when I was a little kid because he sang the song Devil Woman. Oh, my God. Which was God, all over the radio what? in the 1970s. And I was like, oh, sh- that's Cliff Richards. And I only learned that like legit three, three or four years ago. Um, when I when I first started listening to satellite radio, and I'm like, "Devil Woman," I remember this song, and it's a Cliff Richards. Yeah, I think I knew about it, but like I dismissed it. Cliff Richards, like, like we like we just said like eight times already. He was like the British Elvis, but he was not really popular or at all in the in the states. Not really. No, I also learned I, I had heard him sing and saw him in a movie. From like the 1960s when I was really little, because there's a Cliff Richards song at the end of the Thunderbirds movie, Thunderbirds Are Go, that oh, really? he d- performs as a marionette. Stop yes. it! Nope, it's oh, true. That's awesome. Yeah. And then, so I'm like, uh, I have a longer history with Cliff Richards than I ever thought I did. Yeah, and I remember like I don't know if I called you, I was that excited, or I just messaged you, but I was very excited when I found out yes. that. The theme to the TV show, The Young Ones, Once in Every Lifetime, is actually a Cliff Richards song. Yeah, that filled in a whole bunch of gaps yeah. in my uh, in my brain right there. Like, it all makes perfect sense. <laughs> it's like a home home version of the National Treasure movie where you don't have the rights to use the Declaration of Independence and instead you use Young Ones episodes. So yeah, it's yeah, a- it was it was weird, man. All right, so what do we have for the ninth? March 9th, nineteen sixty four. The very first Ford Mustang rolls off the assembly line in Dearborn, Michigan. And yes, and the Ford Mustang pony car defines a pony car, technically, uh, hence its name, the Mustang. That's a horse. (laughs) It's true. It was originally designed as a car for sort of independent younger people. It was targeted initially as like a secretary special. That was how it was advertised. So it was yeah. a car for like a young woman on the go who has an office job in the city and needs a two-door coupe to get there every single day. The Mustang went on to be super duper popular and Ford couldn't make them fast enough. They were built on the uh, same platform. You, you definitely hear us use that term as we talk about cars on this show. The same platform as the Ford Falcon. So it was a relatively simple six-cylinder engine. The same frame, same shocks, same brakes, same transmission. But it had different seats, a different interior, different styling, etc. Right. And it was, poof, off they went. And they sold like gangbusters. Yeah. And the Mustang, at different points in time, was like the quintessential sports car. You know, American sports car. Except for the 80s. Remember the 1980s Mustangs? (laughs) Those things were like... That was like a mom car, and not like a cool mom car. It was like your weird friend's mom's car, yeah. Yeah, the, the Mustang had a weird period between 1975 or so and about 1985 or so. The first half of that is where the Mustang was built on the the uh, Pinto body. So it was effectively a Pinto. That was the Mustang two. They are much hated and very inexpensive to buy on the used market. And then after that, they were rebuilt, and they rebuilt the platform on what's called the Fox Body Platform. So the, tep- the Ford Tempo, the Ford Fairmont, and the Mustang all shared the same platform. And it got a four-cylinder or six-cylinder engine, in some cases the 5.0 liter. And it became a, a little bit more sporty, but they were all geared towards like low emissions and fuel economy. So a lot of the sportness got just beaten out of them by... Ford Motor Company. And they would come back later in uh, 99, 2000 during the sort of revival of classic car design cues as what we still call the Mustang today. 
My friend Ryu has one of those early 2000 Mustangs, and so does my friend uh, Jim Wife Sandy. They both have yeah those early ones. I remember, like, <laughs> we bring up my first car quite often because, well, there's a lot of square inches <laughs> to work with here. It's true. <laughs> um, it was this huge Mercury Cougar. My mom always wanted me to have a big car in case I, like, got into an accident. And did I ever, because that thing was enormous. Uh, but <laughs> how can you not? It's like trying to steal yeah. a, a Star Destroyer. Um, right. But my friend Craig, his first car. Now, he's a little older than me by, like, six months. But I mm-hmm. got my first car first, you know. So, But he got his first car, and motherfucker gets a Mustang. And it was like a 70s Mustang. And I think it was one of those Mustang 2s. And yeah. it, was, it was smaller. I mean, it had four seats, but it was only a two-door. It was a smaller version of Mustang. But it was yeah. sporty looking, and it looked cool. And my car didn't look cool. My car looked like <laughs> a goddamn cruise ship. Yeah. A big, blue, ugly cruise ship. Yes, so I was always super mad and jealous that Craig had a cool car, and I didn't. Well, the difference between the 80s Mustangs and the 70s Mustangs is that they transitioned from rear wheel to front wheel drive, uh-huh. and that made them a lot more, at least for us in the New England snow belt, um, a lot easier to drive you around, yep. whereas you know the older ones, it was donut time, but <laughs> not Dunkin' Donut time as soon as it started to snow. All right, so March the 10th, 1891. We're going back a little bit here. Oh, yeah, I like that. A man by the name of Almond Stroger, who was an undertaker in Topeka, Kansas, uh, <laughs> he patents what we know as the Stroger switch, which is a device that led to the automation of the telephone circuit switching. Picture this, right? You know, like the old, like, ringy-dingy, one number, please, and all that, where you have the operator, like, pulling out the plug and yes. sticking it in and connecting the line? Mm-hmm. Well, he developed a switch that kind of, like, got rid of that and automated it. Yeah. And the reason that Almond Stroger invented the automatic switching system, as you said, Bill, he was one of two undertakers in Topeka, Kansas. Yep. The other undertaker's daughter was the switchboard operator for t- town. So anytime anybody called and needed an undertaker, she would just switch the call to her father's funeral home. <laughs> so, so in a fit of spite, Almond Stroger completely modernized the telephone industry uh, in 1891. Now, only... Uh, like 12 years or 13 years, something like that, after uh, Alexander Graham Bell sort of invented the telephone. Yep. He did the, well, I'll fix you, and invented a a mechanical way for telephones to automatically connect from one telephone box or what's called a station set to another without the interference of a human being in the middle having to manually connect the wires. So I'm going to guess that his Stroger switch was such a success that he he ended up dumping his funeral parlor business. And, you know, because he made all his money on the switches and then that uh, you know, his rival, you know, ended up in doing all the business anyway. I don't know if he got into the switching business or just sold the patent off to a- what would become AT&T, the, uh, the Bell Telephone Company. Yeah. But his his that first automatic switching system that he built, it went nationwide really quickly. Yeah. So we're talking 1891 is when he invents it. By 1901, the first metropolitan area with an automatic switching system installed in it for Bell Telephone customers was in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Stop it. Our hometown. Yeah, it's true. Wow. And it interconnected something like 13,000 people. Oh, you know what? I think I know where that is. Because there's a building on County Street that has like a sign on there. Because that's like a historic area. You're not supposed to update or modify the buildings and stuff like that. Right, right. 
and this one building has like a sign out front that says answering service. And I'm like, who the hell needs an answering service in 2022? But I right. think that sign just stays there because of the historic element. That must have been where the switching building was. Oh, I don't know. I don't. I know that they were big, and they required like multiple floors uh, of racking to make them work. But I, again, I don't know which building you're speaking of, so it could very well be that one. And the other innovation that came with this particular switching system was the, for those of you who remember, rotary dial phones. Previous to rotary dial phones, you cranked a f- I'm making the movements with my thing here, yep. but you cranked the phone to generate a little bit of electricity that lit a light and rung a bell on a switchboard for an operator to see and hear. Can't do that with an automatic switching system. You have to oh. dial in a number. Yeah. So when you dial those. in a number, that number indexes where on that patch panel one line would go to another. Yeah. I, I say I remember those, but I mean, I don't remember it. I remember seeing it like in old movies and stuff like that or... Bell Telephone went on and expanded on and built other crossbar switches and other things, but Stroger was the first one, and it was all built out of spite. Very cool. And metal. (laughs) All right. What do we got for the 11th? March 11th, 1997, the creator of Star Trek, Mr. Gene Roddenberry's ashes, are fired off into space. Not from like a cannon or anything, but he travels up in the space shuttle and they sort of throw him out the window. Then they fire him out with like a t-shirt cannon, right? Right, exactly. Yes, yes. yes. And I think somebody might have yelled, and get out and stay out, you know, or something. Live long and prosper, I guess, and (laughs) (laughs) Engage. Oh, no, wait, that's the next generation, right? (laughs) But anyway, yes, he was launched into space. I don't know if he was launched into space and launched out of orbit. Or if he's just sort of like floating around like a space junk occasionally bouncing off the International Space Station. Like, oh, oh, look, there it is. Here comes Gene. Donk. <laughs> He'll be around again in another 45 minutes. You know? <laughs> so uh, he won up Captain Kirk before Captain Kirk could do anything, huh? He did indeed. Him and James Doohan were both shot off into space after they passed away. Now, who's James Doohan? Uh, James Doohan played Montgomery Scott, the engineer on Starship Enterprise. Oh, the Scotty. Scott. Uh, the Scotty yeah. as in beat me up Scotty. That's the guy. Oh, okay. Oh, so he's out floating around in uh, low orbit too? He also is, yes. And unlike those two guys, though, William Shatner, 90 years old, made it to the edge of space in Jeff Bezos' ship, Giganto Penis-O number one, whatever it's called, and came back down and left alive and came back alive, unlike the other two who left dead and stayed dead. Oh, it's totally their fault. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) I think it's a great honor for them because they had such an impact. And I know we talked about Mae Jemison way back early the first probably five months of the show where i was we talked about may jemison being encouraged to take up science and ultimately became an astronaut who flew on the space shuttle and was in the international space station because of star trek right yes i do remember it has a lingering impact all right no one else has a lingering impact (laughs) march the 12th we have an unusual holiday for march the 12th Uh, my favorite days yeah it's not actually the 12th uh it just happens to fall on the 12th this year uh, so it's, it's usually the second Saturday of March is Fanny Pack Day. All right, Jeff, guilty or not guilty of fanny packs? I'm double guilty. I have double, two fanny double packs. Double guilty? I have a regular normal-sized fanny pack, which is perfect for carrying keys and wallets and, you know, other stuff. Yeah. Hand sanitizer and stuff if you're out doing things around town. Yeah. And I have a very sm- th- slender, like, neoprene one that I used to use when I ran that I could just put my car keys in. And it doesn't weigh a lot, so it's not bouncing against your, like, ass cheek the whole time you're running a 5K or 10K race. Right. I uh, I am guilty 
but I haven't been guilty in a very long time. Fanny packs had like a, a renaissance a couple of years ago, but their big heyday was back like in the 90s. I had one. I never wore it visibly. It was always like under my shirt. You know, I would wear t-shirts and they were fairly long and they were just long enough to cover, you know, the fanny pack. And like I said, they were perfect for holding your keys. And back then I used to carry around like a little, remember those way before smartphones or even before PDAs, there was those little things that you could store your phone numbers in it and stuff. Yes. The things that I would load up and then instantly lose. Yes. Or I would drop in the toilet. Yes. (laughs) I went through many, but I used to keep those in my fanny pack. And then also that was in the age of pagers. So yeah. I would have my, my fanny pack and then the, the pager would be clipped on the belt right next to it. But like I said, you nobody ever really knew that I had one unless I went digging in it for stuff. You know, we don't have the benefit of being like girls who carry around handbags, which can store all their stuff. Right. I don't want to carry a book bag or like a shoulder bag with me everywhere. You know, like I'm, I don't know, that's what I'm used to calling a backpack. That's the thing. That's the yeah. word. Backpack bill. I don't want to carry a backpack around because I don't have to carry that much stuff. But I have to carry more stuff than my pockets can manage, and a, a fanny pack is a perfectly good size for that. Yeah, and if you have a backpack, if you got to get something out of it, you got to take the damn thing off. Right. Yeah. Ugh. And then, you know, but the fanny pack comes with scorn now because they're frowned upon by the, the greater world. So if I'm out walking around with a fan, my my large, normal-sized fanny pack on, and it's got my keys and my wallet in it, and like a set of Bluetooth headphones or earbuds or something, inevitably somebody's going to look at me and think, I got to go to this fanny pack. Go. There's no need for that kind of scorn, Bill. Right. I think that they're very practical. Normalize fanny packs. Right. I am fanny pack positive. Right. Also, let's normalize wearing a fanny pack like a human being, not wearing them up around your third from the bottom ribs walking around theme parks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And also, let's normalize wearing nothing but a fanny pack. Yes. And flip-flops. Right. And nobody wears the fanny pack... On your ass. Nobody does that. I don't know why they call fanny packs. Nobody wears them back. Right, exactly. My fanny is not on the left side of my body over my hip. Right. Normalized fanny packs. The the, the loincloth for 2022. I feel feel like we need to have a hashtag for this. Let's do it. Fanny love. Hashtag fanny fanny love. That's probably not going to go the way we want it to. No, probably not. All right, All right how about uh, hashtag fanny fan? How about hashtag next day? Where we go? Uh, all right. March 13th, 2014, arguably the best entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is released, and that is The Winter Soldier. You are not going to get an argument out of me that it has been my favorite MCU movie since it came out. And it has been mine as well. In fact, the run of Captain America films, Captain America, the First Avenger, the Winter Soldier, and ultimately Civil War, are the three best, most consistent of all of the Marvel movies that are part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it's a really well put together universe, but those three really stand up on their own at as quality adventure filmmaking that really capture the spirit of the books from which their stories are drawn. Everybody would assume because of my history of doing the Comic-Con circuit, because of my resemblance to Tony Stark, and my absolute favorite superhero comic of all time is Spider-Man, you know, you would think that one of those movies, series, would be my favorite, either Iron Man or Spider-Man, but no, my favorite is Captain America. I think those three movies are absolutely fantastic. Those are the best stories. No argument for me there. And the first two are directed by the Russo brothers. I think they've got one more in the can for Marvel before they're off their contract, who came to prominence directing the Lego movie, which is of 
all of the movies about Legos, that's the best one. <laughs> go, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm not even be, I'm trying not to even be funny. Like the Lego movie is a fantastic movie. Yeah. And but just Captain also, America. It just and sounds funny because <laughs> out of all the movies about Legos, that's the best one. But I know there's others, but yes. It, but it sounds like there isn't. <laughs> there's like Lego Batman. There's Lego Justice League. There's a couple of Lego Star Wars movies too. And you know what I really like about that movie too, and it's kind of like been a staple in the MCU, is that movie's like very serious and very action packed and all that. And then every once in a while, they just sneak in this joke because this ongoing running gag where. Black Widow is trying to set Steve Rogers up with various different girls. So they'll be in the middle of a fight of like a gun shootout. And yeah. she'll like look over at him and go, how about that girl from the office? Yeah. <laughs> I think that that speaks to the quality of the Russo brothers as writers too. Yeah, uh, They know how to pace the film to break that tension up right. when it's needed to be broken up and to carry the story forward. Because ultimately the story of Bucky Barnes is a very dark one. Yes. And Sebastian Stan, who plays him in all of the Marvel films, is so good at capturing that sort of darkness and that uncertainty that makes him so much fun to watch. So, great film. Yes. All right. So, let's get on to the celebrity birthdays. March the 7th. Hey, we just mentioned this guy. Uh, March the 7th, 1958, British comedian Rick Mayle. Yeah, yeah. Who played Rick on The Young Ones. He also played Flash Heart, Flash by Name, Flash by Nature on the Black Adder series. Yeah. Yes. He was a staple. You saw him in a lot, a lot, a lot of British stuff. Yes. I got to know him because he was on The Young Ones. Yep. I think that's how you got to know who he is. But they tried to make an American career for him here in the film Drop Dead Fred. Didn't capture the audience that, that it was expected to. No, um, I, I mean, I love that movie and I loved right. Rick Mayo in it. But like we were talking a couple of months ago about Yahoo Serious. I don't right. think the mainstream American audience was down for Rick right. Mayo's kind of zaniness. You and I both saw Rick Mayo long before The Young Ones, though, because... Did we? Yes, we did. He has a very like brief and almost cameo type scene in American Werewolf in London. When they first go into the slaughtered lamb, he's one of the guys in the bar. Oh, jeez, I'll have to go back and watch that. You've been out on the moors then, yep. right? Yeah, okay, I'll have to go, I'll have to watch that again. Uh, I have it, I'll check it out tonight. I also remember him from uh, the show that followed the young ones but didn't get a release here in the States. I watched it when I lived in England called Bottom. Oh, Which yeah, you can, you can Rick, watch it now. It's on Amazon Prime. It is on Amazon Prime with Rick Mayall and Richie Richard and Adrian Edmondson as Eddie Elizabeth Hitler. Uh, <laughs> this show's wicked funny. And if you've ever seen, like, Waiting for Godot, you like Theater of the Absurd, think about that mixed with, like, the Three Stooges. Right, it's yeah. It's wicked funny. It's a lot more physical comedy than a lot of Britcoms are. Yeah. I watched a little bit of it, and I was expecting the young ones. So I was like, yeah, eh. Nope. But if you watch it not expecting the young ones, it's actually very, very, very funny. It's really funny, yeah. All right, next up. March 8th, also 1958. Bill will recognize if who this is if I go... <laughs> That's Gary Newman. You might not believe this, but he's got a few other songs other than Cars. Does he really? One or um, two, yeah. One or two. I know him best from Cars because it was the lead track on a K-Tel record I had called Rock 80. Yes, that is a seminal collection album. I'm a huge fan of that album. It was my brother's record in the house when I was growing up. And then my brother gets married, 
and his wife actually loves that album too. So yeah, I think that's a lot of people's introduction to Gary Newman. Growing up in high school, one of my best friends throughout uh, all those years, and even to this day, he was a huge Gary Newman fan. I was like, oh, you mean the Cars guy? And he said the same thing I just said to you. He's got other songs. Uh, <laughs> kind of really switched gears around 1999. He was always like a like synth pop kind of musician. He put out this album called Outland, which I like a lot, but it just bombed. It did not sell. I think it sold five copies, and I got two of them. <laughs> he bought the other three. But it's a good album. I like it. But his wife had said to him, instead of trying to sell, trying to record an album to you know sell it, why don't you just do what you want to do? And he had gotten really influenced by like Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails and stuff. So that's kind of been the direction he's been going for like the last 20 years. He's kind of got this like almost godfather of goth kind of reputation now too yeah well he definitely had the look he was like a toned down klaus nomi in 1980 and yeah. like with a dark suit and the dark background and the the pancake like makeup the, yeah. the, the pancake makeup yeah and 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 that was the, i mean in the age of the visual component to music and him being there right at the very beginning it's definitely difficult to shake that so yep. you might as well lean into it right so if he's re- releasing songs that are like nine inch nails and it's like i want to cars you like an animal <laughs> you go wild, Gary. <laughs> All right. I say go to Spotify or whatever service you use and look up some Gary Newman. You'll probably like it. You know who else you might like? Our, another, our next birthday boy. Hey, look at this. March the 9th, 1958, yeah. once again. Man. Yeah. All right. A very underrated vocalist in my world. His name is Martin Fry, and he was the vocalist for ABC. Not ABC, another bad creation that we covered on Worst Song Ever. ABC, right. the 80s band. You remember them, right? I do. I remember them quite a bit. Shoot Your Poison Arrow Through My Heart. Yep. They were fantastic. Yeah, and they had another hit song around that time called The Look of Love. Remember the video yes. was like very Benny Hill. I don't remember the video anywhere near as much as I remember the song, but that's because I hear the song. I still hear the song a lot on the, the radio. That's the one that gets played on like 80s programs and stuff a lot. Super strong vocals, yeah. They were big like right at the point where like British New Wave of Heavy Metal had started to transmogrify into a little bit more croony. Jesus, what a word. Music. Yeah. So, well, I mean, think about like the difference between Adam and the Ants, right? So this yeah. is the new romantic movie. Adam and the Ants, Duran Duran, XTC... And, like, they were, even early, early U2, like, with Gloria, they were real sort of punky, proto-punky, kind yeah. of. And by the time you get to shoot your poison arrow through my heart, or later even, like, when when Smokey sings, you've got way more orchestration. The songs are structured more like croony songs. So you've got ABC, Spandau Ballet with True, yeah. Naked Eye with... Um, always Something That'll Remind Me. Always Something That'll Remind Me. All of these songs that are a lot more adult... I'm saying that with an upward inflection because I don't know that that's the right word, but a lot more mature, I think, than yeah. and had shed all of their sort of punky roots to be more to be more mainstream friendly as they the guys are getting older and they're starting to cross over that like bridge into sort of weird adult contemporary. That's not a bad thing. Again, I I think ABC is a fantastic band with a voice like Martin Fry. I honestly, mm-hmm. as much as I love the Ramones and as much as I love you know 1970s punk. And stuff. I think Martin Fry's vocals would be wasted doing that sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. All right, so what do we got next? <laughs> March 10th. See if you can guess what year, Bill. 1982. Ah, uh, nice try, but it's 1958. Oh, okay. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> what? Gain a career as a B-movie actress 
and became an A-list sort of femme fatale who defined like drama cinema in the 1990s and early 2000s, Sharon Stone. Oh, wow. I love her. She is absolutely gorgeous. A beautiful woman. Great. Great actress. Got her start playing <laughs> the confused-looking wife of uh, Steven Seagal in Above the Law. Oh, see, movie. I remember her as the confused-looking wife in Total Recall. She was great in Total Recall as, like, the wife was a spy who was supposed to keep Arnold Schwarzenegger from going to Mars, and they yes. have that awesome fight. She was good in that. She's gorgeous. And then yeah. she, she ended up in uh, Basic Instinct, which redefined her career. Yes. As an ultra-femme fatale, just astonishingly dangerous sexual monster woman who can bend men's minds. That was also the beginning of Michael Douglas's pigeonholed acting career of, boy, I can't pick women. I am in a lot of problematic <laughs> relationships. He definitely did get into the bad choice, the bad decision <laughs> genre of thriller. Sharon Stone then went on, depending on how you want to watch the movie, she she sort of walks away with the movie Casino. That's how you can watch that movie. You can also watch that movie as, oh my God, she screams every single line in this movie, <laughs> which is also Casino, directed by Martin Scorsese. screaming at me. Either way, she's compelling to watch. Yes, it feels like she's screaming at me. She just screams all the time. <laughs> she's gone on after that and made stuff and done and done things on television, and she was in one of my favorite weird revisionist Western directed by Sam Raimi, The Quick and the Dead, that she co-produced. I saw that like eight times in the cinema. I loved it oh, so wow. much. All right, moving on to March the 11th, 1958. No, I'm only kidding. Uh, this guy this guy <laughs> didn't even live till 1958. Oh. March 11th, 1895, a man known as Samuel Horowitz, or better known to the world as Shep Howard. Oh, man, the fourth... Dude? No, he was actually the first third stooge. Yeah. Oh, wait. Yeah, he's the, the first yeah. third stooge. So you he was like me. Shemp, Moe, and Larry. It was Moe, Larry, and Shemp. Oh, so he's the third third stooge. He was the first third stooge because he, he was, was the first third stooge. He'd be Shemp, Moe, Larry, no. right? He's the first third of I'm the three he's stooges. The first third stooge. It's Moe, Larry, Shemp. But that would then, make him the third. Of the three, the first. Three. No, because he. What I'm saying is, when he he was replaced by Curly, Curly being right. the second third stooge. He was the second third stooge, so that makes Larry the first third stooge. No, Larry would be the only second stooge. <laughs> I don't know. Third base. <laughs> third base. Anyway, uh, Shep, much like Curly, was also the brother of Mo Howard. Shep looked a lot more like Mo than Curly did. Shep left the Stooges and was replaced by Curly. Uh, he went into the service and then was subsequently kicked out of the service for bedwetting. And the rumor goes that that may or may not have been accidental. I actually like Shep over Curly. Don't don't at me. I just do. Okay, it's my own personal preference. I feel like this is like a fanny pack thing, Bill. It's, we should have like a hashtag, like hashtag Shemp, okay. Justice. Or something like that. Justice for Shemp. Like, if you're going to write your hate emails, please uh, put either fanny pack or sh- <laughs> or Shemp in the title. <laughs> so we know who to sort them. So to. we know where they're going, yeah. Recycle bin. All right, next up. Uh, March 12th, 1956, which is almost 1958. Uh, my favorite living bass player. Steve Harris, the creative force behind and thundering that drives the band Iron Maiden and has driven Iron Maiden since like 1977. He is, he drives my jigsaw puzzle. He is, he's the man. I think just about 
everybody in Iron Maiden except for him has come and gone over the years? <laughs> yeah. I, I think him and Dave Murray are the only two who haven't ever quit the band. Okay. So Nico McBrain has been there since Peace of Mind. He hasn't ever gone anywhere. Dave Murray's been there since 77. Steve Harris has been there since 77. But all the other guys have rotated in and around. Right, right, right. And yeah, Steve Harris is the reason why Iron Maiden sounds like Iron Maiden. That you, yep. you, if you were to replace Steve Harris with anybody without that, dun, 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 it's not going to sound like Maiden. He just, he yeah. just is. No, I mean for an example, you can listen to like Bruce Dickinson solo records like Tattooed Billionaire or Accident of Birth, which are fantastic records. Yep. It's him and Adrian Smith from Iron Maiden, and they don't sound anything like Iron Maiden right, records. Right. And Steve Harris also immortal. He still looks exactly the same as he did when I first saw I Made It on MTV in the Number of the Beast video. I just saw I Made It a couple of years ago. And I mean, maybe there were just little ants on the stage from where I was standing. But up on the screens and stuff like that, he still looks the same. He died, guy doesn't age much. He, he's the captain of the Iron Maiden football team, like the traveling football team. I think he's the center midfielder, <laughs> which as someone who's played center midfielder, that is the hardest running position on the whole pitch he's been doing this in 77 he also fronts another band called british lion which is currently touring all right and wrapping up the birthdays march the 13th 1941 you're gonna love this one ready maria del rosario mercedes pilar martinez molina beza or as we know her charo Oh. Yes, Queen of the Coochie Coochie. Yeah, I remember her from the 1970s where she was all over variety television. Yep, any variety show, they would have Charo on there or the Love Boat, any kind of like ensemble cast kind of deal, Charo would always be over there. She did a Muppet Show episode, I think, too. That's entirely possible. Uh, I can't confirm that. She is an amazing musician. For for somebody that's known for her, her, uh, I guess you will say, you know, her sex appeal uh, and her figure, I think everybody kind of overlooks that she's an amazing guitar player. Yes. Have you ever seen her play like classical guitar? I've seen her play classical and flamenco. She's she's yeah. awesome. I guess when she was a kid, she she was enrolled in a school for like underprivileged kids in Spain, uh-huh. set up by the guitar virtuoso Andre Segovia, uh-huh. and that's where she learned to play both classical and flamenco. I actually follow her on Instagram. She is something. She's a lot of fun. You get her up there on one of these variety shows, and she could go up there and and play her guitar and play some excellent and beautiful music while other guys are up there doing the worst song ever. All right, Jeff, this week's worst song ever. (laughs) I picked this song. I mean, don't get me wrong. The song is pretty terrible. Uh, It is. But I picked it because this song has one of the worst band names I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) The name of this song is Get Dancing. And the name of the band is, are you ready for this? Disco Tex and the Sexolettes. I know this song, Bill. I know this song. I've known this song for 50 years almost. Oh, really? See, I just heard this just popped up for me on my Spotify because because of the show. I listen to a lot of really bad music. And and this is, oh, you like crap? You'll probably like this. Yeah. All right. So before we go and get into our dive, here's a clip of discotheques and and the sexolettes. Come on, Hollywood, what about it? We need you. We need you to go dance. 
So, my friend, his mom used to make this supper that he used to refer to as hot dog soup, which was basically yep. boiling water, a bunch of hot dogs chopped up, and whatever was left in the kitchen. And yep. that is what this song sounds like. It's like hot dog soup. To me, this song sounds like, look, this disco thing is going to be big. We need to cash in on this before it gets too big and the quality starts to really drop. So what we'll do is we'll release something with every single possible trick of production that we can put into this and we'll make as much money as we can and then we'll all go live in Rio. <laughs> Rio by the CEO. <laughs> oh, mio, oh, my. Oh. And then the song becomes really popular. I like disco. I've liked disco since I was a kid. Yeah. And I can't even complain that this song is like a death throes of disco type song where it's very clearly a cash grab because this song's from 1975. Way before disco goes down the toilet. You yeah, know? no, disco was like not even at its peak popularity yet. It was just starting to branch out yeah. out of the clubs and stuff and become radio friendly, which it makes stupid sense that this song would hit at this time because it is the dumbest, stupidest, and worst disco song ever. And it's completely devoid of ethnic anything and one of the beauty parts of disco is that it expands on 60s motown early 1970s soul a little bit of like gospel music that was popular in the, in the late 1960s and early 1970s and adds dance beats to it right and this song has 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 nothing going for it it is awful yes uh, this song is like a it's like a disco bingo card i guess you could say yes so the whole thing about disco texan is sexolettes is this band, I couldn't believe it whenever I was looking that up. This band has such a pedigree, Jeff, right? Yeah. So yep. Disco Tex himself, right? So he was a guy named Monty Rock III, and that's basically kind of like all he did. That was Disco Tex. But like the Sexolettes, which whenever I first heard, I was like, oh, that's going to be like, you know, three girls. It's not three girls. It's actually... It was two girl, no, two guys and a girl, and then the girl is uh, transgender, and right. now go, was Cindy, now goes by Sydney. Yeah, yeah. This you know uh, crew of miscreants here in the sex elects. Robert Crew, uh, he was a songwriter, dancer, manager, singer, etc., etc., etc. So he was like a, a songwriter for like check out all these songs that he wrote all these songs for like the Four Seasons. He uh, he co-wrote Big Girls Don't Cry, Walk Like a Man, Rag Doll. Yep. Yeah. Was he in the Four Seasons? I don't think or he was. Did he just write I did, for them. No, I think he just wrote. Whenever you write your hate mail, get back to me on that. <laughs> yeah, but then he also like wrote for Michael Jackson, Bobby Darin, Roberta yeah. Flack. Barry Manilow, on and on and on and on. Now, uh, Sidney Bullins, they have an album by them, you know, on their own, a solo album. But they also were backup singers on the Grease soundtrack. Yep. They were background singers for Elton John, mm -hmm. like in that song "Don't Go Breaking My Heart." That's that's Sidney. Yeah. That's Sidney back there. Yeah, and they went out and they were like a backup singer on tour for Elton John and Rod Stewart. Yeah. Oh. All right. Last but not least, Kenny Nolan. He also co-wrote with Frankie Valley that song "My Eyes Adored You." Yep. And then he also wrote Patti LaBelle's "Lady Marmalade." Oh, "Lady Marmalade" is a great song if you hear it once a year. <laughs> After that, it's like uh, it's on a lot on a lot of the disco stations that oh, I like. Okay. Yeah, it comes up. It comes up like every two or three hours, and it's like really yeah. like I don't need to hear this one again, but. 
I, you know, and I still dance around to it, but I know. am just still in awe of the fact that this solid gold pedigree put up such a crap song. It's funny because, like, generally the stuff that producers put together that are just producers who are like, we can't sell this to anybody, or we have a good idea and we don't want to sell this to anybody, yeah. end up being decent songs. Like Neil Diamond's stuff is decent. Admittedly, he's a songwriter, not a producer. But if you look at like um, Nile Rogers, who's the producer of Chic. Oh. He's the guy that makes Chic. Yeah, I was just, and he's he produced Donna Summer's records, and he's astonishing. Yeah, I was just you listening know? to uh, to Chic the other day too. Fantastic, fantastic record, and yeah. it's, it's the same sort of thing as as Disco Tex and the Sex Alive, except there it's good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, their follow up song was called "I Want to Dance with Chew." I want to dance with Chew, and then in parentheses, do that dance. And and the B-side to that song was, I want to dance with Chew, do that dance, part two. <laughs> and we, we will definitely, at some point in the history of this podcast, we'll feature I Want to Dance with Chew as a war song ever, because as terrible as uh, Get Dancing is, I Want to Dance with Chew is worse. Oh, it's the same song. <laughs> it's worse. It's a little bit slower, and it's a lot longer, and it's worse. All right. I'm going to rescue you from the sexolettes, but unfortunately, yes. you're going to be stuck on a desert island for... Oh, I thought we forgot all about this. ...for three or four seasons. All right. Here's the answer to our trivia question. Uh, the skipper on Gilligan's Island uh, did have a name. He wasn't born. His parents didn't name him the skipper. So what was no. the skipper's name on Gilligan's Island? All right. Uh, I've been thinking about this since you asked it what feels like 100 hours ago, but was only one hour ago. Knowing that that show was sometimes a little bit smarter or cuter than it pretended to be, was his, does his name like something like Jonah? Something sort of similar to that or had a nautical attachment. And because there was a shipwreck that put him on the island and Jonah is the bad luck guy. So it, Jonah something? Jonah, I don't know, boat face? Bodie McBoatface, okay, jo- putting, Jonah, Jonah something. You're putting an amazingly way, way, way too much thought into this, but guess what? Probably more thought than they put in most of the scripts of that show. Yeah, but, but guess what? I, I think... You're, okay. you're actually right. Am I? No way. Well, close enough for rock and roll. The okay, character's name win. was Jonas, not Jonah, but Jonas uh, Grumby. Jonas Grumby. Jonas yeah, Grumby. Okay. Was, yep, that was the skipper's name. So... Close enough. I'll, I'll I'll let you squeak by on that one. Uh, you know what? I'll take the point. All right. I, I'll take the point. Yes. One in a row. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. So that is going to wrap up the show for this week, guys. We will see right. you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, Bye everybody. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook or Instagram at Twibbly or T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Subscribe if you haven't already and tell your friends. Maybe they need to learn how to spell potato.